Welcome to the Wealth Matters Podcast, where investors come together to better understand how to build passive cash flow and create generational wealth without all the confusing mumbo jumbo. Here's your host and co-author of Amazon number one bestseller, Alpesh Pamar. Welcome to Wealth Matters Podcast. Today's guest, Jacob Vanderslice is a principal at Van West Partners, a Denver-based real estate investment firm focusing on the acquisition and management of self-storage centers and other opportunistic real estate throughout the U.S. Van West has established a track record with over $195 million in real estate assets. So I am personally looking forward to the episode. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Thanks for having us on today. We appreciate it. Absolutely. So we start with this question with every guest. Tell us something interesting or funny about yourself. Well, um, I had uh, I had sent you a few email responses in advance of the podcast. I'm not sure if I should use the one that I wrote down, but uh, <laughs> I guess I will. Um, for whatever reason, I can shoot water out of my hands further and more accurately than anybody you've ever met. Wow, sure that's where, inter- I, where so- I picked that up, but I would I would I would compare it to like a like a super soaker 30. Um, That's so interesting. Long. Yeah. So how, so how does that work? You just take water in your hand? Yeah, just, then... you know, just one of those. And uh, I just know how to squeeze wow. it out efficiently. Yeah. Okay. I, they, I, I, I get a lot of people, a lot of people wet who don't want to be wet when they're next to the pool. <laughs> so, so maybe you need to apply for a Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, that, that's not a bad idea. I'll have, to, I'll have to look up the record and see if I'm even close to it. And if I am, then maybe that's worth pursuing. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about real estate. What was your very first real estate investment experience? My my first real estate investment was um, in 2005. It was a long oh, time okay. ago. And I bought a single family home with a good buddy of mine uh, in Denver. It was an up-down duplex. And we fixed it up on our days off, did the drywall, the tile, the electrical work all ourselves, took forever. And then we right. uh, <laughs> and then we found a couple tenants for it. Uh, we did no background checks on the tenants, no income verification of wow. any kind. Just great. Here, here's a lease template. Sign it and you know move in. Yeah. And needless to say, those tenants didn't perform very well. But okay. uh, it was it was definitely a learning experience. So uh, and how did that deal work out for you? Because I know you bought it at pink. Uh, as yeah, well, it uh, we we hung on to it and we actually sold it later um, and made some money. And had we known what was going to happen, we would have uh, hung on to it much longer. Right. But, uh, <laughs> who, who knew how things uh, good things would get? Oh, that's interesting. So, so you started with single family, and what after that? What all did you do before you jumped onto? Yeah, we we did a lot of single family over many years. Um, well over a, a thousand buy, fix, and sell deals. Oh wow! So, so you yeah, were we, pretty much flipping. Yeah, we did we did okay. a lot of volume. It was mainly in Colorado, but all over the country. We did some stuff in the Central Valley, just east of you, uh, like okay. five years ago, um, like seven years ago. Um, and then we got into commercial real estate in fourteen. We started doing adaptive reuse retail projects, basically converting old buildings into. Um, multi-tenant experience-based retail, like uh, restaurants, coffee shops. Uh, food, okay, like that's that. interesting. And then, uh, yeah, we've done some town development along the way. We've done some multifamily, land, office. We've covered a lot of bases. And uh, we got into self-storage in 2015. And we looked at the asset class for a while. And we thought we were 
all the way back in 15, we thought we were due for a correction, <laughs> right? Well, Which, was, I cool. think since 2015, I have been thinking we are due for a correction, but it's just not happening. Yeah, just uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe it is now, but um, it certainly didn't happen, uh, you know, in the last seven years. Um, so we want to be more focused on an asset class that was more durable, scalable, repeatable, downside protected. Um, so we did a few development projects here in Denver um, back then that we actually sold about three or four months ago. And then um, went into the Milwaukee market in around 2016. We did some deals out there and uh, then we kind of kept going. And most of our deals were uh, capitalized in single asset syndications with uh, pro kind of programmatic LPs, investors. Mm -hmm. And then we launched our first storage fund in uh, June of 19. We closed that in August of 20. We launched our second fund in 21. We closed that out at the end of 21. And uh, we're on our third fund now. That's awesome. So so why switch from, I mean, you have done pretty much everything, single family to adaptive retail, as well as multifamilies. Why switch from all that into self-storage? Well, we still we still have a number of our um, infill retail projects, and we still have a, a, a decent-sized single-family rental portfolio that we've owned for a long time. Um, but the shift really is uh, we just wanted um, we wanted to focus on cash flow. And we found that self-storage was a, was a great vehicle to produce cash flow. And of course, multifamily does, single family does too. Um, but in our opinion, the, the dividends you can, you can realize from a storage portfolio are a little more substantial than you can a multifamily portfolio or a single family rental portfolio. Um, so we wanted to focus more on uh, one asset class being a, versus being a little more agnostic and covering a bunch of, bunch of strategies at once. And that's where we landed. And we didn't make a conscious decision to jump into self-storage as a primary line of business. We just did a deal and did another one. And that's typically how shifts work, right? It's right. never it's never a big plan. Let's go try something else and see how it goes. And it went okay and we kept going. Yeah, no, and if it works, now you have the team, you have the right tools, why not, yep. right? Um, and the, the biggest uh, benefit to me from self-storage perspective was no tenants. Right. Yep. It's no termites, no toilets, no tenants. That, that that was huge mind shift when I started looking at it. So I invested in self-storage in a fund as an LP, I would say five years ago. That's when I started learning because I was already doing single family and multifamily. And then, of course, as I uh, told you earlier, I invested in or pretty much we bought our first self-storage with a mobile home park. Um, but they, uh, that was the biggest thing that I don't need to manage anyone. I don't need to worry about getting a call because most of the time, you know, there is no tenant, right? Or not most of the time, there shouldn't be any tenant <laughs> in right. living in there. So one question I have though, um, so yeah, cash flow, I understand uh, the tenant side. Is there depreciation like other, you know, like large depreciation like multifamily or mobile home parks? Yeah, and it varies from uh, from deal to deal, but you can do cost segregations. You have standard building depreciation. So you have a lot of the tax benefits and self-storage that you do in any other real estate asset class. Um, so it's definitely definitely attractive from a, from a tax perspective uh, to hold these for a reasonable amount of time. Got it. And... and uh, I understand that we call mobile home parks senior housing and self-storage facilities that's more like recession-resistant assets. 
when you started looking at it, did you look at it? How how did self storage facilities perform during inflation or recession? Yeah, inflation is a little more difficult to say because we haven't been obviously in an inflationary That's environment true. like this for, for, <laughs> for <decades>. a while. <laughs> and and self storage certainly existed back then, but it was much more of an asset class, kind of on the periphery of, of real right. estate asset classes. It wasn't really accepted widely accepted as a as a you know major real estate asset class. Um, so we're not exactly sure how it did back then because there's not a lot of data. Uh, but in downturns, uh, there's plenty of data, right? We had the financial crisis yeah. in 2008 and the years following. And of course, we had COVID and self-storage in, in the financial crisis hung in there. Um, it was one of the better performing asset classes. It had one of the, um, the lowest default rates on the debt side when everybody else was rolling over on debt. Um, self-storage was, uh, was, was performing better. Um, and you kind of shift gears forward to COVID, um, self-storage did spectacular during yes. COVID and it, and it still, it still is. And in fact, it kind of, it kind of concerns us like looking back, um, if you, if you buy a deal today and you look at the last two years of financials, um, <laughs> yeah. it, it probably performed fairly well compared to how it performed the prior two years. Um, uh, but how is that uh, consumer demand going to shift? Um, you know, are, are rates going to go down? Uh, it's tough to forecast, but it did very well during the financial crisis. Um, our our metrics and uh, a lot of other operators were all reporting record NOI growth from mm. Q1 to Q1, um, revenue growth. Uh, I mean, there's been it's been a it's there's been a lot of tailwinds for sure. Because yeah, of yeah. Last couple of years for pretty much all kind of real estate, other than the office buildings, <laughs> yeah. they they did really well <laughs> yeah you've got i mean you've got office uh hospitality and to a degree retail yes, that kind of got beat up like our, our retail tenants of course here in denver um struggled during covid yes and they're still kind of clawing out of it but one of the reasons we like self-storage is we're relying on thousands of people to pay us a tiny bit of money every month yes <laughs> versus you know three or four tenants paying us 20 grand a month each you, yes. you lose one of those guys and you, you've got probably a pretty big problem but the chances that you have a substantial portion of your revenue and self-storage evaporate from one month to the next is pretty low um so that's one of the main reasons we like it no i i totally agree and i have my own experience with one of my friends he was renovating and so he had to downsize. Uh, he was renovating his house, so he moved to an apartment. So he moved his stuff in a self-storage. He was supposed to keep it for a year. It became a couple of years. And then he's like, after he moved in the big house, this is like 3,000 some square foot house. And he's like, ah, it's okay. I'm going to just leave it there. You know, it's 60, 70 bucks a month. It's like coffee money. You don't even care, right? So... And when you yep. upsize, so when you upsize as well, people don't care because you have enough money. When you downsize, you really need to store stuff. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's many of our customers. They will move in thinking they'll be there for three to six months and they end right. up staying for two or three years. And I mean, we've had some customers, um, not during our ownership, but 
who have been in our facilities for 15 years in some cases. Yeah, yeah. Which is and, and the people who are storing their toys like boats and motorcycles and whatnot, yeah. they don't move. <laughs> yeah, well, in a lot of cases, though, uh, by the time you pay a year of rent, you probably could have bought new stuff, but it's yes. out, out of sight, out of mind, it's... and it just auto-drafts from your credit card. If the price goes up a little bit, you're probably not going to go rent a moving truck and get right. your stuff out and put it somewhere else. So it's a it's a very sticky customer base. Yeah, Even yeah. This, this is, is month this, month is, month. this is our American mindset is we take, we buy, we buy, and then we keep it like if I look at my garage, it's like full of junk. Uh, I don't want to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, it's a the American mindset. I might need that someday or or that's sentimental yes. or, you know, I don't want it in my house, but I want to get rid of it. That, that's, that's really, those are good examples of demand drivers in the yeah. industry. So let's talk about um, how you acquire, do you buy existing properties or do you do ground up construction? So we do both. Um, fund three is only buying existing storage facilities. And that can be a, uh, any one of several deal types. We can buy a deal that's um, physically uh, pretty full, but the rates are below market and raise rates over time, control expenses. We could buy a deal that's empty, like a certificate of occupancy acquisition, lease okay. it up and stabilize it. Um, but Fund3 is not doing any raw land development. Um, it will do expansions, meaning we buy an existing deal, right. got excess land next to it, we build more storage. Um, so our development program, we're doing outside of Fund3, uh, mainly because it's just too much of a different strategy and risk profile. Um, you know, the upside's greater, of course, but the uh, downside could be greater too because you're not you're not <laughs> buying an existing building; you're you're putting up a new one. Um, so we're we're doing those deals in single asset syndications outside of our fund. Uh, we just bought a site uh, a couple of weeks ago on the Colorado Front Range. That's going to be all in at about fifteen million. Uh, we have a couple others in Denver in the pipeline that are total project cost uh, around 20 to 23 million. Um, so those projects, yeah, it's a different animal because you're, you're, you're taking a year to build the facility roughly. Right. Leading up to when you buy the land, you're spending nine months getting your entitlements completed. Right, that's, that's huge. And, yeah. yeah, that's if, a, that's if a if big process. If the entitlement is not done, then yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the entitlement process is much more difficult than it used to be. Um, a lot of cities, for whatever reason, are more averse to self-storage than they used to be. So zoning has become tighter. It's just tougher uh, to get projects approved. So yeah, you take a year to build it. And then you take two to three years to stabilize it. So you're, you're not seeing cash flow from that asset for, for some time. Um, so that's why we're doing that outside of our fund. They're good, they're good deals, but just a different um, kind of investor profile and risk profile. Right. So let's talk about the location, right? Because real estate is all about location, location, location. How do you pick the right location for self-storage? Well, the, the three risks in self-storage, we believe... Um, one is rates, right? What what are, what are your stabilized rents going to be? Right. And if you get that wrong just a little bit, that's an exponential effect on the total value of the property. Correct. Um, the second risk, which may seem like it's two in the weeds, but it's not, is accurately forecasting your property taxes. Mm. So if you accrue for a property tax figure and that property tax figure becomes 30% higher, um, that's a material impact on a deal's performance, especially in the Midwest where the property taxes are, are really high. Um, so accurately forecasting and being very conservative on what your property taxes are going to be is, is really important. 
Um, and the third thing we look at is the, the risk of new supply. And that's kind of subjective and objective to a degree. And the, the risk of new supply on a development deal, um, unforecasted new supply will affect the development project more so than it will an existing acquisition. Um, most of our existing acquisitions, if we're buying an existing facility, we'll buy those at a price that is substantially below replacement cost, especially right. in today's environment. Right. So if someone does build new product near us at some point, their cost basis is going to be higher. So their rents are going to have to be higher. They have to. <laughs> we can keep our rates lower because our cost basis is lower. But in, in development, our cost basis is going to be similar to somebody else building nearby. So we really are careful about quantifying the risk of the introduction of new product. And we do that by um, pulling building permits, analyzing zoning, you know, how many parcels in the three mile trade radius allow for self storage use, how many of those are big enough. Uh, you know, to build a storage facility on. Um, have there been concept reviews scheduled with the city, which is basically a pre-flight and many of those are public record. So if you bring a concept to the city and say, I want to build a storage facility on the site, it goes into their database and we'll catch that. So yeah, those are really all the risk factors and those are kind of what drive our site selection. Um, above and beyond that, we look at supply ratios square feet per capita. Um, some markets can support a higher square foot per capita figure than others because their rents are so low. So if you're in an 80 cent a foot market, a lot more customers are going to be able to afford to store. And even though the square foot per capita might be high, all the facilities are full because the rents are so low. And likewise, if you're in a market where rents are $2 and 50 cents a foot, that's expensive. You do the math on a you know 10 by 10 or a 10 by 20, that's a lot of money. Um, so fewer customers in theory can afford to store there. So if more, more supply gets introduced, uh, you're going to have a material impact on rates. So supply ratios is another thing. Um, but then beyond that, just normal real estate fundamentals, real estate nuts and bolts location. Is there a story for population growth? Is there job growth? Is there wage growth? Um, we look at housing density. Um, we look at incomes as a data point, but we care more about just rooftops in the submarket. If you're buying something in a overly rural location, uh, even though it might be full and performing well, there's not that many customers out there, not that many people live nearby. So you're not going to have as many people storing in theory. And if somebody builds a new product somewhere nearby, your supply ratio is going to be very thrown off because the population is already small. So a lot of data points we look at. Um, some are just more real estate focused, like location, story for growth, good demos, and others are more storage focused. And do you also look at uh, demographics as well as um, you also want to have certain um, certain type of population, not type, but certain size of population? Yeah, we 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 target a minimum of fifty thousand people in the three and five mile trade radius. Sometimes there's a story to buy in submarkets that have a lower population in the trade radius. Um, sometimes it'll make sense too, but we're we're not targeting deals in the middle of nowhere for all the reasons I just described. So we like to be in in population centers. Um, we're not uh, for the most part we're not in many primary markets. Most of our markets are secondary and tertiary, and we found those markets to be a a good blend of um, of current yield and cash flow but also with a capital appreciation component on as well. And do you like certain, um, let's say, uh, stores or uh, 
close to the self storage or maybe it's it's near to a hospital or do you do you look at any of those criteria like landmark yeah we we do it's to a degree subjective but it's always nice to see um you know national retailers nearby uh, they're probably smarter with real estate than many of yes. us are. So if someone builds, yeah, a we Costco, look at Starbucks and Costco. Or yeah, Walmart if someone builds a Costco or a Walmart or a Starbucks, there's probably a good reason for it. And if you're nearby there, it's probably a decent market. So we use that as kind of a you know a data point. Um, we don't really have a, a rule of thumb where we got to be within you know three miles of a Starbucks or a Walmart, but certainly something we consider. Got it. So can you tell us who all are part of your team? while you're identifying the location, not just, uh, you know, underwriting the deal and all, but the location? Yeah. Um, my partner, Wade, leads our acquisitions and operations team. And my partner, John, leads our development initiative. And I have another partner. Uh, there's four of us total. Uh, Aaron Westfall, we go back, back to junior high. I've been partners <laughs> since 2009 and everything. Um, he's our, uh, our CFO and IT guy, controller. He wears a lot of hats. Um, but on the site identification side, we, we're okay going into new markets. We haven't been before, as long as we believe we can get some scale there. We don't want to go to a new market and just buy one deal. Um, so one good example is Oklahoma city and Tulsa. We've been looking at those markets for a couple of years. We were just down there this week. Uh, we have a portfolio under contract in Tulsa and we have one deal under contract in Oklahoma city. Um, so we want to get a couple more deals in OKC. But uh, it's a good submarket. It's a good story. We were talking earlier before we started recording. The South has been good. Southeast has been good yeah. lately. Um, so yeah, we're. I don't want to say we're completely geographically agnostic. We'll we'll go where there's a deal. Um, there's some markets we don't love, like the Northeast. We're not really targeting much up there. No. If we see something that makes sense, we might pull the trigger. Not if there's anything wrong with the Northeast, but a lot of people are moving from there. So yes, Florida and <laughs> Texas. Um, so, so yeah, I, I would say in general, our portfolio is focused in the the Midwest, the Southeast, and some stuff in the Southwest. Yeah, I think that's where we focus, Midwest and Southeast as well. Yeah, I was I was laughing when you mentioned Oklahoma City and Tulsa because I have been there. Uh, I on from my IT work, I used to go there uh, six seven years ago, and I exactly know the locations. The OKC downtown is amazing now that they have redeveloped. And I, I have driven from OKC to Tulsa, so it's all oil. <laughs> I just did that drive this week. Oh, yeah. you did? <laughs> yeah, I just did. Yeah, we were on the road at 7 a.m. and You just don't want to drive on that road when it's heavy rain. I ended up doing that once and lightning and like I could not see for, I would say for 30 miles, I could barely see three, four feet ahead of me. And it was, it was hey, bad. They get some serious convective weather down there. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Now we will talk about OKC and Tulsa at some point. So how did you build your team? You know, our team has really been built organically over time. Um, we've got about 75 employees now and 15 of those are in, in our Denver office and, and the balance are uh, scattered around the country across our storage facilities, our on-site managers, regional managers. Um, our boots on the ground employees, we, we source in a couple different ways. Well, often um, hire the existing on-site managers from the prior ownership group. If they're a cultural fit and it makes sense, sometimes we'll hire new ones. Um, but the folks in our Denver office have been um, anywhere from long-term relationships and referrals 
to being sourced from recruiters, um, people who have applied to, to job postings we've had on LinkedIn and Indeed. Um, but we're, we're very proud of our team. We've got some amazing people, very intelligent, hardworking, kind. Uh, culture is a, is a very important thing for us. And team building, especially in this environment, is not easy to do. It's tough <laughs> to find talent. Um, we're paying people a lot more than we used to yes. uh, for all the reasons we know. Uh, but we're, we're very, very proud of the, uh, the crew that, uh, that runs the shop. Looks like we'll end up paying even more once this uh, this college loans are wiped out. <laughs> a yeah, lot of them I, wouldn't even want to work again. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I get a job now that my debt's paid off. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, you and I will pay for it, but yeah, <laughs> at least they don't have to we, pay. <laughs> we, we certainly will, and we, are, we already do. So let's talk about the deals, right? So do you have a self-storage deal which was like, home run, which was the best self-storage deal. Can you share some numbers? Yeah, we um, we sold our portfolio that we had built um, starting in 2015 to extra space um, at a 2.8 cap, which is pretty pretty irrational. I'm not <laughs> sure what they were thinking, but that was fine. Um, we had some deals in that portfolio that were real skinny, but other deals did 30% IRRs. So in, in aggregate, it was profitable and it worked. Um, beyond that, we're not, um, we're not trying to sell anything. We don't want to sell anything anytime soon. We want to, we want to build this asset base, continue to build this asset base, um, and focus on just recurring revenue streams and cash flow. Eventually we're going to monetize it at some point. But, um, one of the main mistakes we've made in our careers is just buying, making better and selling too often and too quickly. And we shifted that focus, you know, call it starting four years ago to more building in a, a business around recurring revenue streams versus transactional revenue streams. So yeah, that, that portfolio did well. Um, but the the home runs really have been deals that we haven't round tripped, uh, deals that we've just seen explosive NOI growth on. I mean, there's some deals that we bought in uh, 2019 where our NOI has tripled since then. And that's a combination of occupancy growth, rate increases, controlling expenses, um, but those those have been the home runs, and when you're when you see that kind of NOI growth, it's tempting to sell, right? Um, but uh, and there's always a price, right, that would make sense if somebody showed up and said, "I'll pay you something crazy." We consider it, uh, but we love the cash flow. So our our biggest home runs have been the, the deals that produce what we think are above market recurring revenue streams. So let me ask you this, because most of the deals I do, or most of the deals uh, the operators have. Um, they look at exiting in five years or maybe seven years. Do you guys have any exit plans on those deals? So we underwrite, uh, in fund three, we underwrite a seven-year hold on every deal that we buy. In our development line of business, we underwrite a five-year hold. Um, but an exit is not necessarily a sale. There are a variety of ways that the equity invested in the deals could substantially be returned before a sale. One way is excess net income. Yeah. And another way is refinance. Yeah, exactly. So if we create a scenario, which we did on fund one, uh, we refinanced about half of our investor equity back out in January and we got 10 year fixed debt at a four interest only. Nice. Um, uh, we're we're going to hold on to those for a while and just enjoy a very above market dividend yield. So we underwrite a seven-year hold, but um, we, uh, as you know, we can't control cap rates. 
we can't forecast where cap rates are going to be in seven years. We can't control interest rates either. Uh, and we can't forecast where rates are going to be in seven years either. I mean, we have an idea, right? We just got word the Fed's going to do another aggressive rate hike. Everyone's saying that it might moderate by the end of next year and start to kind of come back to sort of closer to where it was. But we can't control rates and we can't control cap rates. But to a degree, to a large degree, we can control NOI. We can work to grow NOI. If there's a problem on a deal, we have a cash flow problem or a revenue problem, there's probably something we can do to fix it, right? We can control expenses tighter. We can spend more on advertising. We can put some improvements into the building. So we really just focus on, on the things we can control. And I think if you're growing NOI and growing cash flow over time, to a degree, everything else kind of takes care of itself. Right. And are your investors okay with uh, not selling? Well, we're we're going to sell um, at some point. Uh, we're underwriting a sale of seven years. But if there's a scenario where we can do a substantial return to capital or all their capital, I think most of them would be pleased. Hey, yeah. all my money's back. I'm still getting depreciation and I'm still getting distributions. And I still have the same number of shares in the fund I had before. Um, why get rid of this income stream and why pay taxes right. um, when I don't necessarily have to? So I think, uh, you know, our underwritten timing on the on the sale of these is seven years on an individual deal by deal basis. But I think when we monetize our portfolio, it's going to come in the form of either a, a massive portfolio sale uh, at hopefully a valuation that's greater than the sum of the parts. Um, or it could be a recap, uh, bringing in a new source of equity to stepped up valuation, uh, giving everybody an option to either have a liquidity event or roll into new co. Um, but our modeling that drives our return targets uh, assumes a seven year hold. Got it. Yep. So, so let's talk about the worst deal, if you had any. Uh, the, the worst deals I can, uh, you know, I could, I could. I remember those like they're yesterday. You never forget the bad ones. The home runs, you kind of, right. like, I feel like you kind of have to think about for a minute because sometimes the home runs are, um, I don't want to say luck, but sometimes they're timing, right? You've executed well and you may get the downside, but uh, you had some tailwinds and you just knocked it out of the park and you didn't expect it. And you certainly didn't model it. Uh, but the failures you remember, you know, constantly. So we have, we have one deal, uh, that we still own. My thankfully, there's no investors in it. Um, my two partners and I bought this deal in Iowa as part of a 1031 exchange, uh -oh. and we had a big tax bill if we didn't place it. And this thing was pretty busted, but you know we identified it, so we pulled the trigger and we closed. And it just hasn't performed um, very well. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but it's just a good example of how if someone's in a 1031, you really got to think to yourself, would I buy this deal otherwise if I was not in a 1031? Right. And if the answer is no, you got some self-reflection to do. Now, that is so important because 1031, you are always rushing. You, are, you have time crunch and you don't realize that you may not even look at this deal if it was not for 1031, I agree. Yeah, especially in, in the, especially these days, a 45-day identification period is really yeah, hard to find something bad. that makes sense. Yep. No. So this was great. Uh, thank you so much, Jacob. Let's move on to fire round. All right. Would you be changing any business or investment strategy because of inflation or recession? 
Um, not really. We're we're cautious and conservative in our assumptions that we make when we buy deals, and we were like that before COVID, and we're like that after. Um, the the big thing in our in our underwriting, and really anyone's underwriting, you got to ask yourself: Are the assumptions I'm making in my model are they reasonable and achievable? Right. Yeah. Um, what you shouldn't be saying is if everything goes perfectly, this deal is going to do a 15% IRR, right? right. Um, so we really make sure, at least what we believe to be, uh, we implement reasonable and achievable assumptions. As far as how we're reacting to this environment, um, you know, we don't want a downturn more than, you know, we don't want a downturn, right? Careful what you wish for. But historically, uh, self-storage has been defensible during downturns. So if things get worse, which they probably will, um, self-storage historically has performed fairly well. It's hung in there because when there's a dislocation or a disruption event, people need self-storage. Um, as far as inflation goes, um, inflation uh, to a degree is a good thing for self-storage, at least on the ownership side. And the, the reason for that is all the leases are month to month. So if, if you have a, a you have a highly occupied unit type, say you're 98% on 10 by 10s, you can raise rates on your customer base and on new customers and probably not get a lot of move outs. Um, the big question is, as we increase rates and mark more customers to market, how much more of a monthly nut burden can American consumers sustain when their rent's going up, their gas is going up, their insurance, their utility bills. So at some point there's gonna be a break on what people can, can kind of handle. Um, so self-storage on the revenue side does benefit uh, from an inflationary environment, but you're also catching higher costs on the expense side. Um, yes. Our operating expenses uh, last quarter, for example, in our second fund, they were about 9% over forecast, um, which is not huge. And um, But the reason for that is a lot of our service contracts have gone up. Our vendors, our, our landscaping companies, our repair and maintenance guys, um, our, our employee payroll, it's, it's all increasing. Uh, but thankfully, the revenue side has been increasing a lot faster than the operating expense side. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll see how we'll see what time shows us uh, in this continued environment that we're in. But um, inflation uh, is is uh, self storage benefits to a degree from inflation. Well, that's great. Any favorite real estate or business book? Um, you know, I, I mentioned this in my email to you. I uh, I don't I don't do well with business books. I've I've you know I've read all the all the main ones, I mean, I'm good to great, rich dad, poor dad, but um, my main my main reading genre is historic nonfiction. Yeah, okay. Uh, I like reading books about leadership and, you know, encountering adversity. Um, a big World War II buff, um, read a lot of World War II books, really just kind of anything that's historic nonfiction with a leadership component. Um, um, I'm reading a book right now called uh, Spearhead about a World War tank crew, uh, World War II tank crew. Uh, another good one that I mentioned on way too many podcasts, but it's called In the Kingdom of Ice by Hampton Sides. Mm. Uh, it's a book about um, early polar exploration and uh, what those guys went through. You know, if you and I have a hard day at the office, it doesn't even compare <laughs> uh, to, to what they right. went through. Right, right, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I just, uh, you just reminded me I was just in uh, Oha when I visited Pearl Harbor and learned a lot about World War One and Two. <laughs> yeah. So it yeah. was very interesting and eye-opening. Yeah, that was a pivotal time in our history, for yes. sure. Any tool or website you recommend? Yeah, uh, we use we use Slack for our intercompany communications. Um, it's a it's a great tool that kind of reduces your email traffic. We have different channels like uh, you know property management, acquisition, right. uh, capital development, um, the you know ground up development. So Slack has been a good tool for us. Uh, the only thing I don't like about it is it's uh, you know if you're if it's after hours and someone's you know, writing a bunch of Slack messages, it gets a little notification heavy, you know, a lot of vibrating phones versus email doesn't do that. But um, Slack's a good tool. Another one we use is a platform called Basecamp. Oh, and okay. Basecamp is where we track all our development deals and you can make a new project inside this platform and you can really see the history of, of all the underwriting, the different models. Like you can look at the, especially on development deals, you'll go under contract on a project and you won't close it for nine months. So you'll make a model with your assumptions nine months ago. And as you get your hard costs in and uh, your final term sheet from the bank, those, those assumptions change a lot. So it's fascinating to see like a time-stamped uh, kind of evolution of those modeling assumptions. So yeah, Basecamp and Slack are two that we, uh, we definitely recommend. That's great. Any advice for beginner investors? Yeah, I mean, this... I love talking to folks thinking about getting into real estate. Um, but uh, fundamentally, I think my my main advice is take a risk. Uh, if you've not, if you let's say you're a high earning W2 employee working for a big company and you've always wanted to start investing in real estate, you've read books about it, you've gone to classes and you just haven't done a deal yet, go out and do a deal whatever that might mean, uh, buy a single family rental, uh, buy a duplex, uh, invest in a third party syndication or fund. But the best way to learn is to take action and take risks. There's no perfect deal. There's nothing that's completely downside protected. Um, so there's always going to be risk in everything you invest in, but you're not going to learn how to invest until you start. Right. And so, uh, this is what I tell almost everyone on my podcast and most of the guests have mentioned right you can listen to as many podcasts go to the meetups you know watch youtube but if you don't take action you are not going to learn yeah yeah it's uh and i've, I've had an expensive education from just mistakes i've made many Me times <laughs> over, over 15 years of investing yeah. in real estate and i, I like to say that uh we're, we're not smart we just get less stupid every year um, <laughs> yes we don't know what to do but we we certainly know what not to do yeah i agree how do you give back uh, a couple of different ways I, I used to be involved with uh big brothers big sisters i had my little for nine years uh then he grew up and i recently joined a local hospital board called craig hospital uh here just south of denver and they're a neuro rehabilitation facility and they exclusively focus on traumatic brain injuries and spinal cord injuries. So if you get in a really bad car accident and you get a head injury or you get a spinal cord injury, you go to the ER, right? They get you stabilized. And once you're kind of stabilized and um, you're not declining any further, you go to a place like Craig uh, to learn how to live again. 
Um, you, you, you wander the halls of Craig, people are um, learning to walk. Uh, they're learning how to get into a mocked up airplane seat. They're learning how to use the bathroom oh, wow. way. Yeah. They have a, they have a pool. Um, what they do there is just absolutely amazing. So it's a, it's a special place. That's awesome. How can my listeners reach out to you? Yeah, a couple different ways. I'm always happy to talk shop about real estate, as you might have inferred from our conversation. Uh, you can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com. Hit me on LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice, or go to our website, vanwestpartners.com. Thank you so much, Jacob, for your time. I had a lot of fun. I, I had a blast. Great, great to meet you. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Wealth Matters podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes so others can enjoy the show too. Have a great week and happy investing.